Hey yo, Brent went to daughter, calls went to text, planes turned to drones, robotics in effect. Everybody using apps just to place a few bets. With media 2.0, what's coming next? Well, Gotham Mishra, thanks very much for coming on New Media 2.0. Really excited to sit down and have a chat with you. I thought probably the best place to start would be um, would be to to learn about Inkle and and the philosophy behind it and and why you guys started it up. Sure. Uh, well, look, thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I've seen a couple of the past issues, and you know the interview with Peter Tonner and a few of the others, and so excited to speak to you. Um, let me, I guess, you know, just in terms of what Inkle is, we're a news platform. We've done deals with 100 plus publishers, and so we bring all this news content together under one subscription. So you pay 15 bucks a month. There's about $12,000 in news on the platform. Uh, from places like the New York Times, the Financial Times, and The Economist. And we have algorithms and journalists who do the job of sifting through a quarter of a million articles a month to try and find the biggest, most important stories. So that's that's a little bit about what we do. Um, as to the philosophy of why we do this, well, I guess, you know, we saw the need for, I guess, you, you, you call it a global information platform. Right, because uh, what we found was that um, right now people are going to get the information from platforms like Facebook and Google that were actually designed to do something different, right? They're designed to collect, connect the world's people, or organize the world's information, or you know, do all these other sorts of things, uh, which I'm sure they're very good at. But when people use these platforms to become informed, it creates some really big challenges, you know, fake news, biases, filter bubbles, polarization, a lot of the sort of um, problems that we're seeing in news today. And so we felt that there needed to be a global platform that was designed just to inform people. And that's what we're trying to do. It's a, it's a, a good point, really, the, the news on social media. I think it's pretty well understood by most people that um, you know, there's some issues around trusting those, the news sources that you do see on social media. But what about traditional news formats? Uh, you know, an era gone by, most people have a romantic idea about the news is, is there in search of the truth. When I watch the news, it really looks like the news is there to try and divide and, and instill a huge amount of fear in people so that they'll maintain the viewer's attention for as long as possible. Do you think that's the main driver of traditional news servers and, and not just social media outlets? Majority speaking, you, know, you, you can never put every single news organization in the one basket, but it seems to be a growing trend. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. No, look, absolutely. We're, we're, we're going to be painting with a broad brush here. There are always exceptions to it. But I think your comment's a really good one because I think there are actually two different things happening. Um, when you look at journalists and the people who go into the news business, they are almost uniformly high-minded, right? These are not people who are there necessarily to try and make money. They're motivated by principles and ideas of fairness and accountability. So they're very much sort of driven with, you know, by, by trying to do the right thing. The problem I see in news is um, it's basically been captured by what I call an orthogonal business model, where the way the publishers are making money is not necessarily from the people they're serving, is not from the readers, it's from this other group of people sitting off on the side who they sell the attention and the advertising opportunity to. And when you are doing that in an environment which is very competitive and everyone's chasing those advertisers, it leads you to doing some very crazy things, right? And so you end up with this problem that you were talking about in terms of you know, clickbait and just trying to get people's attention. And you end up making decisions for your short-term interest, which 
long term, you know, create some really big problems. But it's it's also an understandable one, right? Because the core problem in news is that the value of a reader to a publisher has collapsed by 99%. So, you know, imagine if you lived in a world where you were making cars and you could only sell cars for $600 each, or you were selling, you know, phones and you could only sell a phone for $10 each, you know, even Tesla and Apple would go broke, right? And so, and so that's really the problem that these publishers have is that the business model is completely collapsed. And so they're stuck doing a whole bunch of things, trying to solve short-term problems, but creating new longer-term problems in the process. And so what are some of those tactics that traditional news services will do to try and capture people's attention? What are some of the trends you're seeing? Sure. So there's a few things, right? So the first one is you want to be first to publish. And, you know, the half-life of a news story um, is about two hours. And what that means is that half of the people who will ever read a news story will read it in the first two hours of it being published. So if you miss that window, it doesn't matter if you've got the best reporting on it because the world's moved on. And so that creates this mad rush for everybody to go in and publish the story as soon as possible. But the second thing you then have to do is you have to think about how people will find that story. And since more and more people come to news through platforms like Facebook and Twitter, you have to think about what kind of headlines will perform well on Facebook and Twitter. Not necessarily what is the best headline to get people to understand what the story is about, but literally to say, how do I get these people in from Facebook or Twitter into my website? And that, again, leads to overhyping headlines. Like there was one publisher that did 25 different variations of every headline. And they would you know, use A-B testing to try and find the one that was performing the best. Now, that's almost certainly not going to be the most factual headline. It's going to be the one that's most outrageous. And so, you know, these sorts of tactics work in the short term, but to your point, long term, you know, from a reader's perspective, you look at it and you say, this is just madness. And so what are some of the things that readers of the news or consumers of the news can do to be, um, I guess, better educated, but, but maybe just more conscious of, of what those news companies are, are trying to do to them? Yeah, look, I think, um, so, so confirm, confirmation bias is probably the biggest issue. Right, And it's one of the biggest problems created by the internet because no matter what you believe, if you go out and look on the internet, I guarantee you'll find it. Right, And so I think you know, most people understand that conceptually, but it's a hard problem to solve on a daily basis. And I suppose the best thing individuals can do is look for multiple perspectives on a story. Um, you know, we um, had this um, issue a few years ago where Brazil got beaten 7-0 in the World Cup by Germany. Right. And the day after, you know, we had a story that talked about it from the, uh, the perspective of what happened in the game, analysis of the game. There was one that talked about whether the Brazilian coach would get fired, one about whether the Brazilian president was going to get fired. And, you know, so when you start reading all these different perspectives, you actually understand the story much more deeply than you will by reading one article or, in fact, what most people do, which is just read one headline. Because 85 percent of the people who discuss news stories on Twitter do it without ever clicking through into the article. And so, um, you know, the, the solution ultimately is to read multiple perspectives, but I think it's, it's unreasonable to expect that readers will carry the entire weight of doing that. And I think, you know, the question for companies like mine is what can we do, what tools and features can we provide to make that easier for the reader? And, and you know, when you look at, at major news agencies, it, it feels like a lot of them have decided, right, well, we're going to align with, um, right wing, we're going to align with left wing because rather than try to get 100% um, 
of the demographic, we'll just really go after 50% and, and that'll give us a nice customer base that we can sell advertising to. Is there going to be a time where, where that changes and companies do try and be more centrist? Because or, or, where I'm going, it feels like things are just getting more divided and, and if anything, agencies are getting more concentrated in their, their set demographic. Is that going to change anytime soon in your, in your eyes? Look, I'd like it to, and, but I don't think it's necessarily going to change in and of itself. I think the business model shift will help a little bit because when you expect people to pay for a product as opposed to something they'll just use for free, consumers have a higher bar. You know, what I'm going to ask you for, if you're going to ask me to pay for your service, is a lot more. And so that means the publishers have to work harder and they have to source the story and they have to you know, just um, generally lift the quality of the product. So I think that'll help. But I do think there's something inherent about the nature of news that leads to subjectivity. And it has to do with the explosion in the volume of news we're trying to stay across. If you were reading the news 20 years ago, most of what you needed to know was really happening in Melbourne, right? And there might've been on a daily basis, five or 10 stories you really needed to pay attention to. And you could do that from one single publication. But now, what you're finding is that on a daily basis, there might be hundreds of stories you're trying to pay attention to. They're coming to you from all over the world on all sorts of new topics where you don't necessarily have context. And publishers have realized that this is happening. So what they've started to do is they've started to weave more context into the story. But the problem is that's impossible to do objectively because when you start to provide context to a story rather than just report the facts, it becomes more subjective. It becomes more biased. And so is a, there's a reason why that bias exists, but ultimately the only solution is to read multiple points of view. So, so you understand you know, what that bias is. And I think part of the problem is on places like Facebook, you don't know what the news source is. So you don't know what their bias is. You know, once you get familiar with the news brand, you can discount that bias to some extent because you say, okay, I know it's coming from this source. I know this is the line they're gonna take. I'll read it with one eye open because I know that's what's gonna happen. But when you're reading something on Facebook, you have no idea how they're coming at the story. And that's a much bigger issue. And so does Inkle look to reduce that confirmation bias or is the focus mainly around trying to give the, the consumer which stories are the most important in, in any given time? Well, we have to do both because there's a, there's a big element of bias in deciding which stories to show you. Uh, for example, if I just show you positive stories, you're going to think the government's doing really well and you know, the economy is in great shape. If I show you really negative stories about the economy, you'll have the opposite view. So deciding which stories to show you is really important. And we try and make sure that we're looking at how all the publishers we work with are ranking stories on their webpage to understand what's really the most important story for you as a reader. But then the second thing we did was we built a, um, an algorithm to fingerprint articles and find the closest fingerprints. So when you read an article, underneath that, we have a section called Dive Deeper in which we show you the same story from six other perspectives. And what we're seeing there is a really interesting behavior. It's almost like binge reading where people read an article and they scroll down and then they dive deeper into a related article and then they scroll down and then they dive deeper again. And it's one of the things that's most exciting to me about the platform because, you know, after 30 or 40 minutes of doing that, someone's coming out of that tunnel with a much better informed view of that story than they would through, let's say, Facebook or Twitter, where they might see a few headlines and, you know, a bunch of comments and discussions from most of the people who haven't read that article. So I think we have a big role to play in countering that bias and that subjectivity. But I also think we have a lot more work to do. Like one of the things I'd love to do in the future is 
give you some sort of a visual indicator based on the stories you've read to say, hey, Chris, on this issue, here's a spectrum of beliefs, and here's where you sit, and here's where this article sits. Right? And starting to give people those kind of guideposts, I think it's going to be really important in helping people understand where they need to overcome you know, subjectivity and bias. What about that continuum for the author? I mean, that, that's something yeah. that would be pretty useful if they've consistently been just a little bit right-wing of Genghis yeah. Khan or you know, just yeah, a bit absolutely. further left than you know, Chen exactly. Z. Um, yeah. That sort of stuff would be really useful as well. Yeah, absolutely. At the author, at the publisher level, and you know, for the reader themselves as well. And so what about that change in, in payment model in news? It's been an interesting one where you know, we had newspapers and then they got disrupted by essentially free news on the internet. Then they've tried to claw back some of that revenue by putting news behind the paywall. Um, is that going to work longer term? You know, the, the, the general trend is once technology touches something, it deflates yeah. towards yeah. zero, if not to zero. Um, how do you think news is going to go at trying to protect that revenue uh, by introducing paywalls and the like? Um, look, I, I, I do think paywalls are going to be, and consumer revenue subscriptions are going to be the mainstay. You know, I don't think they're going to win back the ad market. To your point, I think that train has left the station. And I think there are companies like Facebook and Google that are just far more effective at servicing the needs of marketers and you know, getting them in front of the right audience at the right time in the right way. Um, so I do think publishers will focus more on subscriptions. The challenge the publishers have is they've arrived you know, with this new idea of selling online subscriptions into a world of supermarkets, right? Where we all as consumers used to getting everything in one place. You know, there used to be a time when we would go to the butcher and we'd go to the fruit store and the vegetable store and the cheese store, but now we all just go to the supermarket. And so that's part of what we're trying to help publishers with is say, well, the consumer is not going to go to five different websites. Very few people today have the money or the time, frankly, the patience to go and check five different websites and you know, try and understand that story. So what you've got to do is you've got to bring it all in one place and make it easier for the consumer. And what we've seen in most markets is you know, that when you build an Apple iTunes or an Amazon or an Etsy or you know, pick whatever vertical you like, when you build that sort of supermarket experience, that's what gets uh, most people galvanized. That's what gets the, um, the market to grow substantially. And I think if we can do that for news, you know, there's two and a half billion people reading news online. So getting to a point where you get, you know, half a billion or a billion people to pay for news seems like an enormous number, but that's still only 20 to 40% of the market. And if we can do that, I think the industry will be absolutely fine. And so does it move away from trying to get huge audiences and selling them a small amount of advertising each to, to having smaller niche audiences who are willing to pay for the content? Is that, is that sort of where it moves, do you think? Not, not entirely. I think it's actually going to look a lot more like financial services, where you have different segments in the market and you have different ways of servicing different segments. So if you think about a bank, right, a bank would look at someone who has a high net worth and say, I'm going to put this person through the private banking channel where I'm willing to spend a lot of money servicing this customer, but I want entire share of wallet. This is a very valuable customer. I want them to only bank with me for all their products. At the other end of the spectrum, I've got people who might have very low sort of um, you know net worth and very low sort of financial return for me as a bank. So there, my question is, how do I service these customers in the lowest cost way possible? And I might give them an online only account and a credit card and say, you can't call anyone on the phone, you can't walk into a bank branch, but you can get basic financial services at a lower cost 
right? And, and you have these different products going into different channels, serving different customers in their unique ways. And I think the same sort of thing has to happen with news. If you've got someone who's willing to subscribe and pay you 200 bucks a year, that's a very valuable reader to the publisher. And you've got to think about what else you do for them. You give them merchandise with your brand on it. You invite them to events. You do all sorts of special things for that customer. But then they've got these other people who will occasionally come into Facebook and Twitter. They don't really care about your brand. They're not in the target market for your advertisers. You can't really do too much with them. And the question is, what becomes the strategy? And I think as publishers develop that segmentation model, you'll start to see more differentiation in the news experiences. You know, so the news you get on Inkle or that you get on the New York Times on webpage or that you get on Facebook, those will start to look and feel more and more different. And so it sounds like you're quite bullish that trust can be rebuilt in the news. I mean, I guess you, you're sort of pot committed to it in, in a sense, having founded a business on, on people having trust in the news. Um, but do you think over time that, that trust can be reversed and rebuilt on, on new services? Yeah, look, I think it absolutely has to. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I see the problem in trust as being a temporary problem. And it's a temporary almost an unforeseen problem because what we did was we said, well, we'll create this um, transparency. And you know, we all looked at the internet and we said the internet's a fantastic way to build transparency. What none of us realized is that transparency doesn't necessarily mean accountability because what's happened with absolute extreme transparency is that we all have very short attention spans. And so you know, we're living in a world now where anyone can really do anything or say anything, and it doesn't matter because within a day, the world's moved on because someone else has said something else, right? And so I think we have to get back to a model where we know which issues to stick with and we start to build that accountability. And whether that'll happen with the existing publishers or whether there'll be new publishers, someone will come in and do that because you know, that's an essential part of how society functions. There's been a, a bit of noise recently about... Um you know, governments infiltrating social media, but traditional media as well and, and, and affecting the news. How genuine is that? And, and do you think governments, both, both foreign and, and, and our own, do they spend considerable money trying to, to infiltrate both social media and traditional media to try and shape a narrative? Oh, if they're any good, they do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, so I think, again, you know, I think politicians probably initially looked at the idea of immediate absolute transparency on the internet and were terrified by it. But I think what they've realized now is that, look, if the internet is defined by anyone saying anything, then they can muddy the waters by saying whatever they feel like. And they don't have to worry about it too much because by the next day, everyone's moved on. And so, you know, I, I mean, show me a politician who loves to be held accountable, right? It's just, that's what they do. And what they realize is that, you know, the way the system's working today can be played to their benefit. And so the best ones will figure out how to do that and to get their own sort of perspective into the story while it's still, you know, in people's consciousness and then just not worry about it the next day when people have moved on. Um, but I do think, you know, that's one of the problems we have to solve. And I think the news media partly has to solve that by going back and saying, okay, well, we're not going to move on from this issue. We're going to stick with this issue because this issue hasn't been resolved yet. And do you think, you know, there, there has been a, a growing number of, amount of distrust with, with significant organisations around the world, be it governments or central banks or you know, even the World Health Organisation. Do you think do you think that's due to a, the information age where more information is readily available to anyone with the internet? Or do you think it is linked to the, the, the quality of the news and news going to more a, a, 
a focus on getting it out first and and a lower cost production or, or, or something else? Yeah, my, my personal view is I think it has to do with consequences, right? Because I absolutely agree with you. I think this is happening at every level. You know, I see it on the weekends when I go to my kids' sporting activities and people are questioning the ref's decisions, right? Um, and you see it all the way at the top when people are questioning the United Nations. And, you know, so uh, there is a massive, I think, breakdown in trust at every level in our society. And for me, a lot of it comes back to this idea that when we place our trust in somebody, and they let us down, we expect there to be consequences. And when we find that there aren't consequences, then we're less inclined to trust them the next time. And so this is where I think the news has a really important part to play because you know the whole point of the news is to not let people escape accountability, to stay with the story, to stay with something that's gone wrong and to ensure that it reaches a satisfactory outcome because without that, no one's gonna trust anyone. I don't, I don't know what the full answer to this is. I'm hoping that creating you know dedicated information platforms like inco and you know, there'll be others as well hopefully we will be part of the answer i don't know whether we'll be enough but i completely agree with you it's one of the biggest issues right and there's also other technological like i guess you call them advances but things like deep fakes the ability to to put someone's head on someone's body and 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 make them look like they're doing something like these sorts of things which are going to become more and more prevalent and, and cheaper to use in two, five, ten years, what's that going to do to people when all of a sudden not only can they not necessarily trust the news, but they may not even be able to trust their own eyes? Yeah, look, um, that's one of the things that I think I'm personally most concerned about because, you know, they say seeing is believing, right? And um, when you see a video of someone saying something, it's going to take a lot to convince you that that wasn't a real video. Um, and what we know already about fake news is that it's almost impossible to correct after the fact. You know, if you can't nip it in the bud, once the story's gone viral, you can just forever chase your tail and you're not going to be able to get on top of it. So for me, this really, you know, it just means that there's a greater sense of urgency around this question of provenance. Because in news, I think the information in the article is really important, but just as important is who created that information? Where did that information come from? And that's why I think, you know, sooner rather than later, we need a trusted place, a safe place to read the news, to understand what's happening. An intermediary, if you will, whether it's Inkle or somebody else, who's going to do that work of, you know, filtering out the fake and the real, and that you can then say, okay, if I'm reading on this platform, I can trust it, because right now we don't have that. And I guess there'll be technological advances that can be used then to judge the deep fakes. You know, it's easy to say that there's going to be technological advances to create these deep fakes, but there's also going to be some things on the other side of the ledger that can sort of adjudicate if that is or isn't real. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm, that's I'm, coming I'm, as well. I'm a lot more sceptical about that. Um, you know, I, I tend to believe in human ingenuity, right? And I just think that people will keep coming up with new things. I mean, you see this even now, right? That Facebook and Google throw their hands up and they say, we can't police fake news because no matter what they come up with, someone will find some way to circumvent, you know, whatever checks and balances they have. Um, if someone's really, you know, hell-bent on building a fake news story or a fake news video, they'll do it, right? And you won't be able to catch them. Um, and I think that's why, you know, part of the problem with Facebook and Google in particular, is that they're open by design. They're designed to be places where anybody can say or do or put any information out. That's fine in certain contexts, but you can't have that in news, right? In news, it's the difference between YouTube and Netflix, 
right? Um, you know, you couldn't have Netflix with a model where anyone could create a video because you just wouldn't get the same experience. And so you do have to have for some kinds of purposes, news I think is one of those, you need to have a closed platform where someone is playing the role of gatekeeper and vetting the voices that are brought into the platform. And what about the idea of, of online anonymity of the people commenting on news or, or um, you know, there's been some really interesting developments around some of the cyberbullying and Aaron Nolan's done some great work on that and around cancer culture. But there's also the other school of thought which where people will say as more and more people rely on the government for their income, cancel culture creates, uh, becomes stronger and stronger. Speaking out against something uh, creates more and more personal risk. And if you don't have anonymity online, you'll lose an element of free speech. Where do you sit on that continuum? Look, I do think most people behave in a much more civil fashion in real life than they do online. And the principal reason for that is because you know, there's reputation and there's consequences to behaving badly in real life. And if you had some of the same you know, consequences in the online world, I think that would be a good thing. Um, you know, having to have your own photo and your profile and you know, know who this person is would absolutely have an impact on the way in which people conduct themselves online. There are certainly cases, right? There are you know, people who are oppressed or people who are physically in danger where anonymity is important for them. But that is not the case for 80, 90% of the world's people. And so I think what we need to do is not sort of take the case of those 10, 20% and then extrapolate from that and apply that to everybody because that's actually creating a much bigger problem for everyone else. Um, I think we should solve those two problems separately. Absolutely, there are some people who should have that cover of anonymity, but for the vast majority of us, I think accountability is a good thing. And do you think it's, is it, I'm not sure if you've looked back at previous advances in technology, are the teething problems, which most people feel they're experiencing with, with news online or social media, do you think that's just a natural outcome of a, a, a new technology that's really pervasive in a world that's moving fast and it will start to be cleaned up and make a bit more sense in 10 to 20 years? Or do you think this is just the beginning of the great unravelling? Uh, I think it's the beginning of the great unravelling. And, and there is, well, the reason for this is because there's actually two different currents of change, okay? So you've got technological change and then you've got social change. And in the past, um, you know, so technological change leads and then social change has to catch up. The problem we've got is that technological change is getting faster and faster. So the ability for social change to keep up is, you know, more and more limited. And one of the areas in which we see this, for example, is job displacement, right? The rate at which jobs are going to get destroyed because of automation and AI far exceeds the rate at which we are going to be able to find new jobs to place those people into. So there's going to be a period in the middle where there's an awful lot of people wondering what to do with themselves and how to make a living, right? And eventually, maybe we'll catch up to that, but by then there'll be some other problem created. So I do think there's a fundamental challenge in the idea of technological progress getting faster and faster, because I don't think as human beings, as society, we're keeping up with that. I thought you were going to leave us on a on a on a positive note, Gotham. But that's uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, I spend all day reading about uh, central banks and currency debasement. But when I think about the amount of currency that's being printed, and doesn't necessarily show up in inflation in a lot of things because technology is making so many things so much cheaper. But the news sort of reminds me of that too. You know, you used to have news which was pristine and there was a limited amount of it, and we've had such huge inflation in it. And like you said. 
it just doesn't carry the same weight anymore, much like a dollar doesn't carry the same weight anymore when you, when you compare it to the price of land or something that technology is not depreciating. But, um, but there's, a, there's yeah, a really good analogy in that, right? Because in financial services, you have financial advisors who help individuals understand where to put their money. Because, you know, like a thousand years ago, you didn't need the financial advisor because you would put your money into land or gold or maybe, you know, cash. Right. But today you've got hundreds of instruments or, or hundreds of asset classes and thousands of instruments in each asset class. So you need someone giving you that advice. I think we've got the same problem in news. You know, we need a news advisor who's going to say, Chris, pay attention to this. Don't pay attention to this. Learn more about this. You know, overcome your bias on this. And without that, I think we're going to struggle. I think at some stage you either need to spend all day doing something and you can become an expert in that. Yeah. Or if you're limited for time, which 90% of people are, you actually have to trust someone, don't you? Yes. And I mean, that's Absolutely. what people do with a financial advisor. And that financial advisor can still stitch you up. Yeah, but yeah. If, you don't trust any, if you don't trust anyone and you, ha- and you don't have the time to do it properly yourself, yeah. it just becomes very challenging, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you'll always have people, you know, taking that, uh, taking advantage of that role and that sort of trust. But hopefully there's enough good financial advisors and there'll be enough good news advisors out there that you know, they can make it work for the rest of us. Mildly more upbeat to finish Gotham, but uh, <laughs> mate, I, I, thanks very much for the chat. I, I loved it and um, could have spoken to you for another uh, another hour. So thanks very much for the time and, uh, and good luck with Inkle. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying new media 2.0, please subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. 